All right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you, and it's good to be back with you after uh, I took a, about a month off from preaching, and uh, other guys stepped up, and you know, I, I talked to somebody last week, and they just remarked to me what a, what a blessing it is to have so many different preachers that can step up and fill in uh, that, that helps the burden that I have of, of preparing all the time. And it also is just good to hear uh, from different people that um, are prepared to preach the Word of God. So it's, it really is a blessing. We've got a deep bench of preachers, and that's, that's, that's a fantastic uh, blessing and privilege. So we're really blessed in a lot of ways. Uh, in uh, the month of July, I got away for a few different events. I did a, a three-day prayer retreat. And then the elders, we got away for a three-day elder retreat. And then my family, we took a vacation uh, to the Smoky Mountains. We went glamping. That's a thing. Uh, so it's like camping, but glamorous or something. So it's like we stayed in a tent, but the tent was, was like built out of a, a frame. So it looked like a house from the outside, but has like a canvas roof and walls, and it's got air conditioning inside. Um, <laughs> But the air conditioner worked most of the time um, during the hottest week, I think, that Tennessee has ever experienced. So it, was, uh, it wasn't like the glamorous part, more on the camping part, but we had, we had a great time and we saw a bear. So we saw several bears, you know, like we drove through Cades Cove and we saw some bears, but then there was a bear that wandered into our campground. And uh, so we, we, uh, we saw a bunch of people standing around, and a bear evidently had wandered into the campground and climbed up a tree and was hanging out right above somebody's camper. So <laughs> that, was, uh, that was a little bit of excitement. But uh, no, whenever we checked in, there was a, a little manual they give you that tells you, you know, here's, you know, here's uh, what you need to know about the campground. And so there were two pages about here's where stuff is, here's what to do in case of an emergency, and so on. And then like 15 pages about bear management, you know, like if you, if you encounter a bear, you're supposed to make yourself look really big and, and like shout, hey bear, to scare it off. Uh, so I guess bears know English and hey bear scares them. Um, we had to lock up our food in the van every night, though not keep it in our tent because the bears will come in and rummage around. Anyway, it was a good time, good, a good break, and it's good to be back with you. And here we are. You've made it. We're at the end of Genesis. We've preached through the whole book pretty much. Uh, we skipped a couple parts, but, for, but we really covered the, the, the lion's share of the book. And I want to I land the plane this morning with the final chapter of the book of Genesis. Um, next week, for what it's worth, um, we'll be starting a four-week series on unity. And um, don't miss this. It, it'll be a really important series. I, I hope that it will uh, be really really helpful and clarifying for us. But today, we're, we're going to finish up Genesis, and this chapter focuses primarily on the death of Jacob, which is Joseph's father, and the story is how they grieved him. So what we're going to look at this morning is dealing with grief, dealing with grief, particularly as it pertains to losing somebody that we love, all right? Well, let's dig in. Genesis, we're going to pick it up here at the end of 49, so Genesis 49 and we'll work our way through the rest of the book. Genesis 49, and I'm going to start at verse 28. So if you recall from last week, um, Ben Holby preached through the, the blessing of Jacob on his 12 sons. Um, and then now we're in the, the end of this, so we're picking up right at the end of that. Verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them. 
blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Let's pause here for a second. So if you recall, going all the way back to the promise to Abraham, Genesis 12, the covenant promise included giving to Abraham and to his family the land of Canaan. So there was a promise of blessing, of descendants, of blessing the nations and things like that. But it also included a promise of land. But throughout the book of Genesis, you may notice that that promise went unfulfilled. I mean, there's still a wandering people. Abraham and his whole family, they were all sort of nomadic in their their life. So now Jacob and his whole family, all of them are living down in Egypt. They're away from the land of promise, and they're there because of the famine, right? So Jacob recalls something in this story here that happened in chapter 32, where Abraham buys a field. Now, this is something that we skipped over, but Abraham buys a field in Genesis 23 whenever his wife died. So Sarah had died. He wanted to give her a proper burial, but he didn't own any land. So he purchases a field from this guy, Ephron the Hittite, and the field had a cave in it that could be used as a burial plot for Sarah. So he bought it, and the story is recorded in 23. They, he purchased it with money, which, which includes, like, it's like a, a sales receipt in the Old Testament. It's like they have legal title to this land. They own it. So Abraham buried Sarah in this, uh, in this plot, and he was buried there. So Abraham and Sarah both were buried there. Jacob, or, I, or excuse me, Isaac and Rebekah were both buried there. Jacob buried his wife Leah there. And now Jacob is saying, Bury me in this place too. Two observations. Number one, this burial plot is like a down payment on the whole land of Canaan. God promised to give them the entire land. And so this burial plot is sort of like the first down payment, the first little piece of it that they were going to own. So whenever God would give them this land, that would be that this burial plot represented the future inheritance. Number two, Being buried with your relatives reflected their hope that death reunited them with their ancestors. And so there's this idiom, this uh, figure of speech that is used. We saw it once already. We'll see it again in verse 33. The idiom for death is being gathered to your people. And that, that represents or reflects their hope that when they die, they're reunited with their loved ones. So Jacob is specific. He wants to be buried with his father, Isaac, and with his grandfather, Abraham, and his grandmothers because he shared the same hope and the same God. He was clinging to the same promises given to to them, this promise, this covenant with Abraham. So Jacob died clinging to God's promise that God's people would inherit this land one day and that Jacob, when he died, he would be reunited with his loved ones. Now let's keep going. Verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed 
and breathed his last, and here's the phrase, he was gathered to his people. He died. Now, chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. So Joseph commanded his father's body to be embalmed. And that's an uncommon practice with the Hebrew people. They don't normally do this. So why did he do it? Well, we're not told explicitly, but um, commentators most likely say that it was to preserve the body because they had a long journey back to Canaan for, for, uh, for Jacob to be buried in the cave. It was like a 200-mile journey, and they had to embalm him and then prepare the body and to... So it's was, it was to preserve the body during that journey. Nevertheless, the typical Hebrew practice um, was to wrap the body in a cloth and to bury it in a grave or in a cave or some, some kind of uh, earthen container. And this had theological meaning. And I want to explore this uh, for a few minutes here, the theological meaning. So looking back to Genesis chapter 2, we are told about the creation of man. So Genesis 2 verse 7 says that God created Adam from the dust of the ground. So here's the verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So man was created from the dust of the ground, indicating that apart from the God breathing his breath into us, we ourselves are nothing. We're atoms, we're molecules, but God breathing the breath of life into us, that's what makes us human. And we're created just from, from the dust of the ground. We're created from natural, uh, natural components. Now, a chapter later, after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed Adam for his sin with death, and the death returns him to the dust, right? So Genesis 3, verse 19 says this, God speaking, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So in the Old Testament, dust, it's a metaphor for death. God created life in man from the dust, and then death is the uncreation of man. He returns to the dust from which he was created. Ecclesiastes 3.20, it captures the same idea. It says this, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. This is the Old Testament idea. Now, another thing that the Old Testament teaches is the resurrection of the body, that God would physically raise us up from the grave. Now, we see this in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to this. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, meaning they've died, they shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Meaning that every human being awaits a resurrection, Christian or non-Christian. Everybody awaits a day when we will be raised in our bodies, and some of us will be raised to this everlasting experience in a body of fellowship with God. We call that heaven. And then others will be raised to an everlasting punishment, which we call that hell. And this is, this is taught throughout Scripture. So heaven and hell are physical, bodily experiences. 
So for these and a number of other reasons, the Christian faith places an extraordinarily high value on the human body. So in Genesis 2-7, when God made Adam, the Hebrew literally reads, he became a living soul. Or you could even say he became an embodied soul. So a lot of times we think that, well, our body is just a house. This, this house, this, this, this thing, that, this structure that we live in. And the real you is the soul. And the soul lives in this house. But the fact of the matter is, is that the real you is both your soul and your body. It's, it's both. Because we are an embodied soul. So your body is an essential part of who you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that includes your body. So whenever Christ returns as Christians, we will receive an incorruptible, glorified body that resembles Jesus and his resurrection body. Just as he is human and he raised from the dead, us as humans, whenever we raise, are raised from the dead, we will receive a body just like Jesus' resurrection body. And in a similar way, our resurrection bodies will have some continuity with our earthly bodies. Now, in some ways, it's different, but in some ways, it's the same. And we don't know exactly how much is different and how much is the same, but we do know there is some continuity, at least some continuity with our earthly bodies. So we see this with Jesus. Like after the resurrection, sometimes his disciples didn't recognize him. You ever found that strange? Like they would see Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. But yet at other times, Jesus could somehow uh, manifest himself to where they would recognize him. So the recognition was not automatic because I would imagine, at least in part, Jesus looked a little different. But at other times, he looked similar enough to where they're like, oh, this is Jesus. And also Thomas, uh, in the resurrection body, whenever he doubted, he put his hands into the wounds of Jesus in his side. Now, does that mean that Jesus' wounds are eternal? Well, I don't know. I mean, presumably they would, I mean, I would imagine that they would heal. But in, in some way, like, there is at least enough continuity with his earthly body that was crucified that Thomas, a few days after his resurrection, could put his hands into the wounds of Jesus to verify that this was, in fact, Jesus who had risen from the dead. And just as God made us male and female in our bodies now, that's a forever thing. Like, we will forever be male and female. Our bodies maintain some continuity between our earthly body and our eternal body, our heavenly body. So, in short, there are two things I want to just emphasize here. One is the immortality of the soul. We go on forever. But two, the resurrection of the body. As Christians, we believe both of these things because the Scripture teaches both. And these beliefs undergird a lot of funeral customs because much of what we do in funerals reflects the hope of the resurrection. We'll look at that a little bit in a moment. Let me just read to you a text that is the most extensive treatment in the Bible about the resurrection. So if, if you want to uh, turn there, because it's lengthy, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want to read to you about 14 verses. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, and this whole chapter is about the resurrection, but there's a section in particular that emphasizes the resurrection of the body that I want to emphasize. So verse 35 says this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, 
What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Meaning the body that dies is just a kernel. That's what dies and is sown. It's planted. It's buried in the ground like a seed. But that's not the body to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, your resurrection body, is imperishable. It's eternal. It lives forever. It is sown in dishonor, frail, corrupt, weakened by sin. It is raised in glory, perfect. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. We read that already. He became a living soul, an embodied soul. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, meaning Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the dust, right? A man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We'll all be raised in a physical body. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting death. And the body that we are raised in will be, a, for Christians, a glorified body. Perfect, renewed, imperishable, glorious. And we will live in that body forever. Just as Jesus Christ was raised in a body, he resides forever in the body that he was raised in. And he forever lives to intercede for us. So that is the hope of the resurrection. Not only of the soul, the immortality of the soul, but also the resurrection of the body. All right, now let's keep going. Genesis chapter 50, let's pick it up in verse 4. And I want to talk about a ritual of lament. A ritual of lament. Let's see how they grieved the death of Jacob. When the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to, his house, or to the household of Pharaoh saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, My father made me swear saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, still speaking to Pharaoh, now, therefore, Pharaoh, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household, 
Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, which is in Egypt. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field in Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. All right. So there's this huge funeral procession that is coming up out of Egypt that is all of Jacob's family plus Egyptians, officials. They're, they're this massive caravan going from Egypt all the way to Canaan, 200-mile journey. And they're going there to bury Jacob with his fathers in the land of promise, in the cave that was purchased by Jacob's, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. Now, the typical mourning period in Israel would have been somewhere between 7 and 30 days. Verse 3 says that the Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days. That's a long time. And that's just two days shy of the amount of time required for mourning whenever a Pharaoh dies. That's 72 days. The point being, it's like the Egyptians are showing Jacob a very, very high honor. The mourning rites in the ancient world were often really elaborate. So there were these drawn out expressions of grief. So they would like do things like they would tear their clothes. They would wear sackcloth. They would put dirt and ashes on their heads. Sometimes they would even self-mutilate and cut themselves. It was not uncommon. This is kind of, kind of wild. It was not uncommon to pay professional mourners to come and cry at your funeral and wail on cue at the right time, you know, just to show everybody just how much this person was missed. So, I mean, like, and there are scriptures that I could point, to, point you to that talk about the professional mourners showing up at different times. So that was, that was kind of weird. <laughs> but it's also revealing because it showed that they respected the need to set aside a particular time and a particular place for grieving. They, they had this, this set space where they said, this is the time allotted to grieve. And it could, it could vary in length of time, seven days, 30, 40, 70 days, whatever. But, but they set aside a particular time in the ancient world to grieve. So for them, grieving was not just a sudden feeling of sadness that came over you or an outburst of emotion, but rather grieving was a deliberate and established ritual. That's what I want to focus on. It was a ritual. And they also set aside time for weeping. That was an important part of the grief ritual because there was a time where they were expected to cry. They said, here's the time when we cry. It was, it was part of their grieving. It was, it, it was an acceptable custom. It's like, we need this time to grieve, to lament, to cry, to do something physical, to express the grief that is in our hearts. You know, as... 
there was ancient, the ancient Stoics. This philosophy you might have heard of, ah, he's so Stoic, meaning like it's an expression meaning that somebody is just really kind of unemotional, right? Well, that, that's actually part of a philosophy, the Stoic philosophy. They actually had something called the Stoic ideal, which was somebody who was, was uh, so emotionally um, bottled up that they never expressed emotion. They didn't let it show at all. And so whenever we say somebody is acting Stoic, what we mean is like, or that, that comes from the idea of the Stoic philosophy, which is you, it's wrong and improper to show emotion. So they, they believed this, that expressing emotion was bad, and particularly for men, because it was seen as a sign of weakness to cry. And one thing that's interesting is that, have you noticed how many times in the story of Joseph, have you noticed how many times he cries? I mean, as I've read this story, I mean, that stands out to me that there are several different points where Joseph weeps. By my count, there are nine times where Joseph in particular cries in the story from Genesis 37 to 50. So Joseph's emotions was, were not a sign of weakness. And there was this particularly powerful moment whenever he was first reunited with his father. I want to read this verse to you. They'd been apart for 20 years. So this is not grief. This is celebration. This is joy. Genesis 46, verse 29 it says this, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. That a good while, that's, that's telling, isn't it? It's like it wasn't just like there was a tear, you know, <laughs> this, this little tear escaped. But no, it's like he fell on his neck and he clung to him as his father and he, he wept a good while on his father's neck. It's a powerful story. It's an emotional moment. And the thing is, humans, like, we are emotional creatures. It's, it's, it is, is part of our, our, of our, the way God has made us, that we feel things. We feel things because we, we invest meaning in life experiences, and that meaning that we invest these experiences triggers an emotional response. So emotions can be powerful and good if they're learned to be kept under control. But emotions are good. Now, if somebody's emotions are out of control, it does make them weak because they're volatile. They're, they're, they become irrational. But if their emotions are under control, it can inspire passion and drive. You know, I, I like watching, uh, you know, March Madness basketball or whatever. And, you, you know, Dick Vitale, one of, the, uh, one of the guys, like, it's March Madness, baby, that guy. So it's like he'll, he'll, he'll talk about the game and if it's like this, this powerful, you know, if it's like a rivalry and it's like close and it's neck and neck and it's coming down to the wire, but like, he plays with such emotion, baby. It's like he's talking about their feeling, their drive, their, their energy, their passion. It's like they are really, their emotion, the, the depth of the belief of what they want to accomplish drives them to achieve at a higher level. That's, that's a, it's a channeling of emotion toward a good purpose. So emotions are not bad if they're kept under control. They can inspire us to reach great heights. And we see in the Bible, like, our heroes, they're emotional. Now, King David, all through the Psalms, he's always crying. The Apostle Paul, you know, he, he, he talks about, you know, I said this or that with many tears or something like that. The Apostle Paul cried. And, of course, you know, Jesus cried. You know, the, the shortest verse in the Bible, whenever Lazarus, Jesus' friend, died, the shortest verse is simply Jesus wept. 
And of course, there's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was so overcome with grief and anguish that he cried and his tears became drops of blood, which physiologically, that is a sign of an extreme anguish of, of the soul and the body. The Bible references tears or weeping over 200 times. Tears are commonly associated with mourning. So whenever we're mourning a great loss, it's a good thing to allow time and space to weep together, to weep openly, to let the tears flow. That's not a bad thing. And funerals are a grieving ritual because what it does is it provides this socially acceptable place to express emotion, to express our grief together, to set aside a time and say, in this time, in this space, it's okay to let it fly. It's okay to feel it and to let it, and to, and to let it show up in grief. And, and we're not going to think bad of each other or think that we're weak or that something, or that something is, 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 uh, is, is wrong with us other than the fact that we're grieving. So funerals are not for the dead but for the living. It helps us to cope with loss, Right? to feel the pain with others. Now, in the modern world, there's this interesting thing that we do, which is we try to avoid pain. We try to, we try to uh, avoid facing unpleasant realities. And so in the process, we can do things that would lead us to miss opportunities to grieve properly. I've noticed a recent trend where having traditional there's, there's, uh, people don't have as many traditional funerals. I mean, still do. It's not like they've gone away, but I've, I've noticed more and more celebrations of life services are replacing a traditional funeral. Have you noticed that? I've noticed that. I was at one a few weeks ago. This teacher that uh, was at my kid's school, she had a long battle with cancer. Just a, an absolute joy and delight of a woman. Um, but we were told, like, hey, this is not a funeral. This is a celebration of life. And she loved bright colors, you know, wear pink and wear green. And, you know, those were her favorite colors. So we're going to do this. And so wear bright colors and come to this celebration of life service. And I'm like, okay, we'll play ball. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do what they've asked us to do. Um, but there was, there, was, there was something there. I was, I was just wondering, like, is there, is there space for grief? Or are we, are we trying not to grieve? Because this is, a, this is a woman who was clearly loved, clearly cherished. Um, and they want to honor her by doing the celebration of life. But, I, and, and I'm not critiquing that. I'm just saying like there, there, there needs to be at least some place where we say it's okay to grieve too. It's not wrong to grieve. It's not wrong to feel the pain of somebody that's died. The thing is funerals, they are unpleasant. They're painful, you know, like... I mean, I've been to some funerals where, like, people are weeping and wailing. It's like, you know, I've got this one aunt in my family who just, like, it's almost like we're, like, taking bets. Like, when is she going to pass out, you know, <laughs> because she's just going to lose it. But, like, that's, that's how she grieves. I mean, she just, she goes all in, you know, <laughs> at a funeral. But it's, it makes us uncomfortable. So I think there's more wisdom than we realize in these ancient grieving traditions, these funeral rites, I think they're good for us in ways that, that we don't want to discount, right? So a funeral liturgy, it's, it provides a path for the grieving soul with predictable patterns and routines that give stability for a person whose life has been upended by a loss. And these ancient traditions, they can be very comforting for people. 
It's like a ballast for your life, something that anchors you because it's something that's predictable and repeatable, something you've seen over and over again. So you know what to expect at different times, and it helps your soul to get oriented to the grief and allows you space to express it, to feel it. So whenever people wear black to a funeral, it publicly signals an emotional state. It says, we're, it's okay to feel sad. We're grieving. And, you know, I'll, I personally, I see a lot of value in, in having a prescribed time allotment for grieving, like a set start and end time. Now, that's, that's, that's not part of our cultural tradition at all, but we see it was clearly part of the ancient tradition. You know, have anywhere from seven days to 30 days, 40 days, 70 days, but it's like saying, okay, there's going to be a time bracketed off where life is going to kind of, we're going to reduce our activities to the minimum to survive, and we're going to deliberately set aside time for grieving. And then at the end of that time, we'll still feel the pain, but yet we're mentally switching to, a, to the next phase where we move on. I know a man um, who lost his son to suicide. And after some time, nobody knew how to interact with him. And so there were, it was almost like he was perceived as being in this perpetual state of grief and everybody wanted to just give him space. And really what happened is like people were avoiding him because they didn't know how to interact with him. And so he took to Facebook and he wrote about this. And it was a fascinating thing because he was basically coaching everybody that would read this about how to interact with him. He's, it would say, it's okay to approach me and talk to me. It's okay to ask me how I'm doing. It's okay to ask me about my son. It's okay for me if I don't know how to respond. He was saying, like, here's all the things that are okay. And he was, he was telling people, it's like, this is what grieving looks like for me in this unusual circumstance. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 4, gives us this idea of setting aside time. It says, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. That goes on. It's good to have a season of time set aside for grief. The point is this. Grieving is a slow process. It takes time to heal. The heart needs time and space to mourn, to reflect to remember. And if we rush through it too quickly and put a smiley sticker on the pain, we short-circuit the healing process. Nevertheless, grieving can't continue forever. Life has to go on. And it's good if we're able to consciously bring it to a close and move on and, and have, have, a, have a mental picture of what the next phase is like. All right, well, let's... Let's look at healing. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. 
And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. One more verse. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. All right, what's going on here? The death of a family member can sometimes fracture relationships, right? Especially with the, sur- the surviving members of the family. Death is disruptive and it resorts relationships, realigns loyalties. And this is especially true when it's a parent that dies. Because a lot of times the parent is the glue that holds the siblings together that otherwise don't like each other very much. But they get along because, hey, it's Christmas, it's Thanksgiving, you know, so we don't want to fight in front of mom and dad. But whenever the parent dies, then the hostilities can come out. So Joseph's brothers were worried that now that Jacob is dead, Joseph would take this opportunity to get revenge on them for all the evil things they did to him. Now, the story that they tell Joseph it was a made-up story. They're saying, hey, uh, dad's dying wish was that you would let the whole thing go. You know? So honor your father by not retaliating against us. Now, Joseph was clearly hurt by this, right? I mean, like his, his, he'd already forgiven them. And they were basically accusing Joseph of insincerity. Saying, well, you only forgave us, you know, for, your, for our dad's sake. But it wasn't sincere. You didn't mean it. I mean, imagine if you were in a similar situation. You know, somebody's wounded you terribly, and you muster all the faith that you, can, that you can possibly muster. And you step out in faith, and you trust God against your heart to do the most difficult thing, and you forgive the person that wounded you so badly, only to have them later accuse you of forgiving them as a pretext for revenge. That thing that was a great step of faith for you, they said, well, you didn't really mean that. Of course you would be hurt by that. Jacob was hurt by that. This is just another reminder for him of all that he had lost. Not only did he lose 20 years with his family, all the birthdays and celebrations and weddings and all the fun things that he could have done with them, he not only lost them, he lost his brothers. And even though he thought he had gained them back, he saw that to them, he's more Egyptian than, than their brother. Kind of like that scene in stories. He's, no, he's more machine now than man. You know, it's just kind of like they don't really see him as real. It's like you're, you're, you haven't really reconciled with us. And that hurts him. It, 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 it reminds him of the, the distance relationally between them. And so through his tears, Joseph responds with one of the most profound statements in the Bible. So there's three sentences here. I want to read these three verses, three sentences, which contain three lessons. Each of these lessons express some of the heights of Christian virtue. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? First lesson, man has no right to revenge. Am I in the place of God? Rhetorical question, the obvious answer is no. Revenge belongs to God. God alone has the right to either avenge or atone for the evil of man. That's the first lesson. Number two, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Second lesson, God's providence works through man's malice. 
God works through the evil of man to bring about the greater glory of God and for our good. God's providence works through man's mouths. Number three, verse 21. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The third lesson is evil is ultimately defeated with good. God works through man to overcome evil by doing good. So Joseph was a wounded man, right? We could see from his tears the pain of his brother's betrayal was still with him. He was still hurt by it. But instead of seeking revenge, he acted with love and with grace, making a personal vow to protect them and to provide for them and their families. So instead of repaying evil for evil and punishing them for their sin, Joseph would repay evil with good and show them grace. We see the heart of our Savior contained here in the acts of this Old Testament saint who anticipated the forgiveness of the cross. So Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said while he was being crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It's Christian virtue. That's the, the gospel ethic contained in the Old Testament all these years before the arrival of Christ. Finally, verse 22, we'll finish it out here. Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This concludes the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Whenever Joseph died, he died in faith, looking ahead to the promise. Joseph died having only caught a glimpse of the future fulfillment of the promises. And like his dad, he died clinging to the hope of things yet to be fulfilled. And so he knew that someday all of his relatives and descendants would leave Egypt and return to possess the land of promise. And so he made them vow, whenever you leave Egypt and return to Canaan, take up my bones here in Egypt and carry them with you, which Moses does. It's recorded in Exodus, I believe, chapter 13. But he did promise in verse 25, saying, God will surely visit you. The next visitation of God would take place with Moses at the Exodus, some 400 years later. And there were even more divine visitations to come, but ultimately they point to the first and second visitations of Christ himself. And so for us, we live between the two divine visitations, right? So the first one we look back upon where Christ came once, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. But now we look ahead, waiting for Christ to come again, for the resurrection of the body, where he will take us home to be with him forever. And so while we wait, 
We continue to experience the pain of a broken and fallen world. We continue to experience death, lost loved ones. People come and people go. We have funerals, burials, weeping, healing. And we grieve, but not without hope, right? So let me leave you this morning with a final word from the Apostle Paul, who wrote about grieving with hope. Now, this text is a fitting summary of all the things we've talked about this morning, a theology of death and grief and hope. So this is from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. I'll read this text, and then we'll pray. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we, not, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him, or God will bring with him, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you. We come to you clinging to the hope of the resurrection, thanking you that by your own resurrection on the cross, Lord Jesus, that we have the hope of the future resurrection of our own bodies. And we thank you that you came with a purpose and a mission to, to die in our place and to be the sacrifice for our sin so that we can know forgiveness and healing and so that we can be brought into the hope that belonged to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the hope that has been given to us, the hope of eternal life, of being united forever with you and with your people from all generations and of all nations from around the world, all your people eternally united with you forever. Lord Jesus, your death on the cross purchased that gift. We thank you. And we thank you that you rose from the dead, demonstrating your power and mastery over the grave, that death will not hold you down. And so, Lord, there are some of us here who grieve for various losses. But as we see in 1 Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians here, that we do not grieve as those who don't have any hope. We grieve with the hope of the resurrection, knowing that the pain and loss and grief of this world will come to an end. And we await the return of Christ, clinging to the promise that God will surely visit you. You've always kept your promises, and the promises yet to be fulfilled, we know that you will surely bring them to pass. And so we cling to that hope. Lord, I do pray your comfort over those who are grieving this morning those who continue to grieve after losses long ago. 
who miss their loved ones or are grieving over some other painful event. I ask you, God, to, to comfort them. Father, remind us all of the hope of the gospel. Help us to remember that this world is not the end, but that we, we live our lives and we one day die with our nose pointed toward heaven, knowing that you will surely visit us. And Lord, I pray for those here that do not believe. They have not committed their life to you. Lord, I pray that you will impress upon their souls the truth of the gospel, that they can have life and salvation and they can themselves enter into that hope through faith in Jesus. So Lord, I ask you to bring about conversations with friends, with these folks that they can hear and believe and place their faith in Jesus Christ and enter into that hope themselves. We thank you now as we come to the table, remembering your sacrifice, Lord. And I pray that as we take the bread and the cup, that we will not only be reminded of the past, what you've done, but also be reminded of the future, that you will surely visit us. And as you tell us that we will do this in remembrance of you until you return. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.